Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Let's take out our Bibles today and uh, turn to the book of Galatians. We started a study in Galatians last week. If you weren't here uh, with us, you can go online and uh, listen to the introductory teaching. I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork for the book. Uh, we looked at the first nine verses, but today we're going to look at uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 to 24. And uh, yeah, as you're turning there, we'd love to have you out at the Fall Festival this coming uh, Saturday. It's from 12 to 3, but you can really come at any point during that window of time. At about the midway point, we're going to have our costume competition and a bunch of fun games for the kids to be part of. So love for you to be out for that part of it. And then the rest of the time, there'll be lots of different activities and booths and games for them to uh, partake of. So you could be there for all three hours, but you could be there for an hour and a half if you want to. Come on by. Uh, if you um, don't have any kids, come. It's hilarious, it's fun, and it's just a great family environment for the church as we gather uh, together. Wanted to follow up also from uh, last week. I talked to you guys about the Calvary Kids ministry that it takes about 70 people uh, each uh, uh, in total to be part of this team, about 32 people each Sunday. And so with people on rotation serving every other week, ideally we'd have about 70 people involved there. And uh, we had about 40. Uh, last week I talked to you about it and we had another 10 people uh, sign up this last week. So they're starting to get uh, filtered in and uh, screened and trained and all that kind of stuff. But just wanted to remind you, if you heard me talk about that last week and you said, you know, that is something I'd like to do. I'd like to volunteer a couple of Sunday uh, morning services a month. I'd love for you to do that. Again, kind of the vision or the hope that I have is that we would embrace a mentality where we serve at a service and attend a service. That could be a great way to do things on Sunday morning. And uh, it's a huge help, makes a big difference, not just for the church, but for the kiddos downstairs. So if you wanna be involved in blessing them, I guarantee, what I can guarantee you is you will come away with some great stories. Uh, because these kids are hilarious. There's just always something funny that they say or do every single week. So I encourage you to get involved there. All right, Galatians chapter one, let's read our whole passage together. This is Paul telling his uh, story. Uh, just a reminder, last week I told you that our theme for Galatians is the word fly. We want to uh, fly into the life that Paul describes at the end of the book of Galatians. But in order to do that, we have to understand the gospel correctly. We can't add to the gospel. We can't subtract from the gospel either. But the Galatians were being attempted, uh, tempted to add to the gospel, add all these Old Testament ceremonial customs, uh, legalism basically, uh, in order to be approved by Jesus. Paul is going to build the case for why you shouldn't do that and that you should embrace the real true gospel. Uh, but today he's going to tell his story, kind of defending his apostleship. So let's read it together, starting in verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently 
and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And when I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to per persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray together. Lord, we wanna thank you for this passage of scripture. We pray that you'd use it in our lives today in the way that you intended it to be used. Inspire us by Paul's story, absolutely. But we pray, Lord, deeper than that, that we would be convinced that Paul's gospel that he preaches is a legitimate gospel, the legitimate gospel, and that the theology that flowed from this gospel that he wrote to us in his 13 New Testament letters is theology that we should receive today. Help us, Lord, uh, by your spirit to understand the logic that Paul is using here and to apply it into our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Well, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that Paul's story of his conversion is a radical story. He alludes to it here in these 15 verses that we just read together. In Acts chapter nine, Paul, who by his Jewish name was referred to as Saul, was on a road traveling from Jerusalem to a city in Syria called Damascus so that he could imprison Christians who were preaching Christ there in Damascus. Uh, he'd overseen the murder of Christians. He'd been standing there when Stephen was uh, martyred and became the first martyr in the early church. He was standing there holding the coats of those who were throwing rocks at Stephen. Uh, Paul or Saul at that point was in a bad place in his life. And as he traveled on that road to Damascus, so firm in his conviction that the gospel message that the early church was preaching was actually anathema and a poison among God's people. A bright light shone from heaven. The Lord spoke in a thunderous voice and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And at that point, Saul gave his life to Christ. He submitted to Jesus. He began to believe in the gospel. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that that record is told three separate times. First in Acts chapter nine, when it occurred in the timeline, but two other times when Paul is sharing his testimony, once with a crowd of people and once with Roman officials who are about to decide his fate. And here we have it a fourth time at the beginning of the book of Galatians. And because it's been repeated so often in the New Testament, and because many of us have heard Paul's story over and over again, 
The danger that we might enter into is that we grow a little tired of this story. Okay, we've heard the story. It's amazing, it's powerful, it's beautiful. But what are we really going to glean from it today, we might ask. But this passage that we just read this morning, it is of great and vital significance and importance because what it does is it throws us into a consideration again of who Paul is and the gospel that Paul preached. And here's the thing, the gospel that Paul preached and the theology that flows from it, it impacts literally everything in the Christian life. The stakes are very high. Should we believe that Paul and the gospel that he preached were legitimate? Should we believe that the 13 letters that Paul wrote are legitimate? Should we believe that the doctrines and the conclusions that he came to are legitimate or should we not? I mean, I don't think it's hyperbole at all to say that Paul's theology and Paul's doctrine affects everything in the Christian faith. His writings, his teachings, his exhortations, they, they permeate every sermon I preach, I know that much. They permeate every song that we sing as a church. They permeate and influence the structure and organization of this church and many local churches. Uh, they permeate and influence what we believe about all matters pertaining to salvation. I mean, to put it bluntly, what we think about God, what we feel about God, is influenced by what Paul said and what Paul wrote. So why should we listen to this man? And beyond his influence in the church and on the church, because the church for the last 2,000 years has gone out into all of the world and has impacted the world deeply and greatly, Paul's words have also affected a ton of things in modern society. In fact, many people in modern society are arguing about things that Paul communicated, things that Paul wrote, things that Paul the apostle taught. His teachings on subjects like human depravity that were broken as human beings in and under sin. Things that he taught about human sexuality or that he taught about gender roles or the role of government or marriage and family or behavioral ethics, what's right and wrong, racism and classism, what leads to a successful life. Countless, of other, countless other things Paul the apostle weighed in on and impacted the church and the church then impacted culture and society. So our world has been influenced by Paul. You know, we talk about influencers today. Paul has had more influence on the history of humanity than any modern influencer, and he still today has more of an influence upon society, thousands of years after he lived, than anyone else could hope to have. And here's the thing, sometimes Paul's influence is brought into question. It's not at all uncommon for someone in our modern age, uh, maybe a Christian, maybe not a Christian, to read something in Paul's New Testament letters. I think I mentioned this already. He wrote 13 of them, uh, maybe 14 if he's the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, and at times when you're reading Paul's words, I mean, there's a quote from Peter in one of his letters. He says, and Paul wrote many things that are hard to understand. <laughs> The Apostle Peter, he's like, Paul's deep, man. And there are times when you're reading Paul, you're studying one of his letters, or there are bound to be moments where you read something that confronts a belief that you had, a thought that you have, or a belief that society holds. 
And as you're confused or perhaps angered or flustered, uh, you might begin to wonder, why do I need to listen to Paul? Uh, He was not one of Jesus's original disciples, so why do I have to listen to this man? Why does he get to be such a significant voice in Christianity? Uh, You might say to yourself, when I read the gospels, when I read the life of Jesus, I don't see Paul's theology. It's not obvious to me. And maybe what I should do is embrace a Jesus-only version of Christianity. Uh, You might say to yourself, Paul is too complex, or Paul is too confrontational. Paul is too argumentative or abrasive. Paul is too narrow. But you might also say, and Jesus, well, he's just simple, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's accepting. He's the one that I'll listen to. And as for Paul, I think I'll dispense of him. Uh, But if you know me, you know that I think that's a grave error, a major mistake. And this passage helps us understand why. It, It is a challenge and a question that Paul was dealing with in this letter. The Galatian believers had begun to think that Paul did not have the credentials to communicate to them as an apostle what was true and what was not true. And false teachers had come into Galatia and basically said to these brand new Galatian Christians who had heard Paul say, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose from the dead for you. And if you believe and trust in him, then you can be brought from death into life. And that's it. When these false teachers came into Galatia, they said, Paul's fine, but you need to add to Paul's gospel things like circumcision or the religious festivals that they used to keep back in the Old Testament era. You need to add all this religiosity to that gospel message. You can't truly be saved. You can't truly know Jesus unless this is added to that gospel message. And what they were saying is, Paul, he's not qualified to speak about these things. The church back in Jerusalem, the apostles, the OG apostles back in Jerusalem, They don't agree with Paul. His message is a different message, so you need to reject this man. All right, so today we're gonna ask a couple of questions because Paul tells his story as a way to say, my gospel, the gospel, is the legitimate gospel. Uh, He's not defending himself because he just wants to defend himself. He's defending himself because he always wants to defend the gospel. And as long as they were attacking his authority, they were attacking the gospel. So he had to defend himself as a way to defend the precious jewel of the gospel itself. So we're going to ask two questions today. One is doctrinal, philosophical, theological. So you'll have to bear with me, but it's just the question that the text is asking. Is Paul's gospel legitimate? That's the first question we're going to ask. And the second question that we're gonna ask is, what did the gospel produce in Paul? This will be more of an applicational part of the teaching. What happened to Paul as a result of Jesus's gospel? All right, so first question, why is Paul's gospel legitimate? I mean, is 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 it something that I can build my life on? I mean, you think about what the gospel message is, it's something that we are staking our eternal life on. It's a belief system on which we're saying, if this is true and if I believe it, then I can know God eternally. And if it is 
All it, and if it is true and I do not believe it, then I'll be separated from God eternally. The stakes, as we saw last week, are so high. So what is the reason that Paul gives for the legitimacy of his gospel message? All right, well, in this story, as we read through it, all these different places and names, it might have gotten a little confusing to you, but there are two big things that Paul points out in this story. And the first one is this. The gospel that Paul preached is legit because he received it directly from Jesus. All right, that's, that's the argument that he's going to flesh out in this passage. The gospel that I preached to you is legit because I received it, he said, directly from Jesus. Look at verse 11. He said, I'm not preaching man's gospel. You see that there in verse 11? I'm not preaching man's gospel. And then he fleshes out what he means by that in verse 12 when he says that he did not receive the gospel that he preached from any man, no person. He said, but I, and I wasn't even taught this gospel from anybody else, but he says, I received it directly through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul's story, how was he saved? Did anybody come to him and share the gospel message to him? I'm not saying that he never heard it. I think he probably did. But nobody came directly to him and said, Paul, here's the gospel message. Do you believe it? It was Jesus himself who communicated that message to him. But I, but I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying. He's not only saying that in Acts 9, on the road to Damascus, when the bright light shone and Jesus spoke, he revealed himself to me and that's it. That's when the revelation stopped. No, what Paul is saying is that after that, in fact, we'll see in the passage for three years after that, Jesus continued to personally reveal himself to Paul. Jesus was teaching Paul, training Paul, communicating to Paul beautiful things. The other apostles, how long did they get with Jesus? They got three years walking around Galilee and Judea with Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I got my three years too. They were out in Arabia and they weren't with the physical Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus. But I was not only saved directly by a revelation from Christ, but I walked with Jesus for those three years. And he is the one who put the Bible together for me and informed me and taught me his gospel message. Okay, another clue that Paul received his message directly from Jesus is that he didn't preach a message that humans would ever come up with. They would never design it themselves. Look at what he said in verse 10, our very first verse actually. He said, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. With these rhetorical questions, what Paul is saying is that his gospel message was not a message that humans would approve of or that humans would find pleasing. In other words, the gospel message, it's a confrontational message in the sense that it first condemns us as dead in trespasses and sins, and then it demands that only the blood of Jesus can make us pure in the sight of God. In other words, uh, a, a human message is figure it out and be good and, you know, there's good inside of you and you, you can be approved in God's sight by being something better than you are today. But the gospel message doesn't say that. It says you're dead 
It, it's, you're spiritually dead. You have no life. There's no energy. You can't even get up in front of God. But, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you believe in him, then he will make you alive. That's the message. And so what Paul is saying is, look, listen to what I preached. I received this from Jesus. It's a divine message. No human being would ever come up with the stuff that I've been saying. You see, humans like to make messages that cater to extremes on one side or the other, or we like to make messages that are right in the middle, that are uh, moderations, they're moderate in comparison to the extremes on either side. You, you know what they say about people who are moderate, right? People that are moderate think that people on both sides of them are crazy. And Paul, though, did not preach one extreme or the other extreme, or something moderate. The gospel is extreme on both poles. The gospel says that we're dead in trespasses and sins, but that we can be made alive in God. The Bible says that we're irreparably separated from God, but that God so loved us that if we believe in him, in the gospel, the, 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 the cross of Christ, we can be saved. The, 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 the gospel tears us down to the studs and tells us that we are reprobate and dead in sin, but it also says at the same time and in the same breath that we're the crown jewel of God's creation. It's not a message, in other words, that people would construct. And so Paul said, that's another evidence that I received it from Jesus. But a third evidence that he received it from Jesus is found in verse 13 and 14. He kind of tells a story of his past. And basically what he's trying to say is, guys, I wasn't prone at all to receive the gospel message. Think about who I was before I became a Christian. He's like, I, in my former life of Judaism, I was persecuting the church, and, and he was. He was witnessing the death of Christians. Later in his life, when he told his testimony, he said that he felt he was guilty for the death of Christians, the blood of Christians on his hands. He had, he says, extreme zeal for the tradition of his fathers. He said, I, and I even advanced above anybody else my age. I was at the head of my class when it came to Judaism. In a sense, you could ask the question, who in the early church even stood a chance evangelizing Paul? I mean, Paul was smarter than everybody in the early church. There was nobody that was his intellectual superior in those early days. And probably ever, really. And he was so clearly and concretely and decidedly <laughs> against the gospel message. It's like you would just look at Paul and for one, you'd be terrified as an early Christian. Like Ananias, remember when Paul got saved and the Lord spoke to Ananias and he's like, hey, go pray for Paul. You know, he's coming to your city, go pray for Paul. And Ananias says, Lord, he's arresting us. He's killing us. I'm afraid of him. I don't want to pray for him. So for one, like what Christian would even have the guts to share with Paul before he became a Christian? But two, who would even think that there was a window, a sliver, a door of opportunity? He seemed so decided until Jesus broke through. It's like Paul is saying, who else could have reached me? Peter could have come. Angels could have come and it wouldn't have done it for me. I had to have a direct revelation from Jesus himself knocking me on my butt and showing me his glory in order for me to believe. 
And one last clue that Paul received the gospel directly from Jesus, it's found in what he said happened to him right after he became a Christian. It's interesting. He's on a road from Jerusalem to Damascus, this way, to Damascus to persecute Christians. And instead of getting saved and going straight back to Jerusalem to tell like all the apostles, like you're never gonna believe this, you guys. I know I've been your biggest enemy, but now I believe in Jesus and I wanna be on your team. Instead of doing that, the Lord just tells him to go up to Damascus. And then he says here, I left Damascus and I went further into the, into, into the wilderness. I went further away into Arabia and I was there for three years. I wasn't getting instructed by the apostles. They weren't teaching me. They weren't pouring into me. I was being discipled by nobody, man, but Jesus himself. And I came out of that time in the wilderness, uh, equipped, built up, because all the scripture that I'd been learning as a Pharisee, the Lord had enlivened. He had shown me what it was really all about out there in the wilderness. They were times of incredible revelation from Jesus to Paul. Like I said, to me, in my mind, these are the three years that the other disciples got with Jesus on earth. These are those three years made up for Paul. He got to spend that time with the Lord. You know, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the, their gospels, the accounts of Jesus's life, Paul seems to have complimented them by writing of the implications of Jesus's life and teaching and death and resurrection. And he got all of that stuff out there in the wilderness directly from Jesus. Okay, now at this point, some of you might be saying, okay, so the big argument that he, uh, his gospel is legitimate is that he got it directly from Jesus. What if some loony bin comes up to church today and is like, hey, I got another gospel. I got it straight from Jesus, I swear. Are we supposed to believe that too? Well, there's a second and complementary reason why we should believe that Paul's gospel is legit. And uh, it's this, according to this passage, not only did Paul receive the message directly from Jesus, but he goes on to, to detail that Jesus's people then in turn received him. And I'll explain to you why that's important. Paul's gospel, in other words, is legit because first he got it from Christ, but also because Christ's people acknowledged Paul. Okay, and the, the, the reason or the way that he describes that here in this passage or in his story as he says in verse 18, he says, you know, there, there did come a point where I did finally go to Jerusalem. He gets saved, he goes to Arabia and Damascus for three years, but then he finally does take a trip to Jerusalem. Uh, you might imagine that that trip is like a trip for him to get his like apostle certificate from Peter and all the other apostles. Like I'm here, I'm here to report for duty. I have a, a, like a theological exam that I go through and they're like, wow, you passed with flying colors. You're, you, you are an apostle, here's your certificate, here's your badge go out and do it. But that's not at all what happened. It says in verse 18 that he went to visit Cephas. That word visit, Cephas is Peter. That word visit is a word that means to relationally get to know. <laughs> He's like, you know, I, I met Jesus. I, I'm, I've got this theology that's developed now and I'm starting to preach it. I should probably go meet the number one apostle just to get to know each other, you know, just to spend some relational time with each other. And then he says, and while I was there, 
I met only one other apostle on that trip. Eventually he met all the guys. But on this trip, he says, I met one other apostle. It was James, the brother of Jesus. Now, when we read that, some of you might start freaking out. Like, what? Jesus had brothers? I did not know this. Well, he did. Mary and Joseph went on to have a normal little family after Jesus's miraculous birth. So obviously, James was Jesus's younger brother. And James was a skeptic during Jesus's public ministry. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he became a believer. And the book of Acts teaches us that he became a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And he became known as an apostle because he fit all the apostolic requirements. You had to have seen Jesus during his earthly life and ministry and who had seen him more than his brother. He'd seen Jesus and then you had to be a witness to his resurrection. He'd seen him in his resurrected form. So he was able to testify of these things. So he fit the apostolic requirement and God was raising him up in that early church. And what Paul is saying is, when I went to Jerusalem for those 15 days to hang out with Peter and I also met James, notice what's totally absent. There's no confrontation. There's no correction. There's no, hey man, you know what you're saying, what you're starting to say, this gospel that you're preaching that doesn't have this addition to it of keeping the Old Testament law, the things that you're communicating, not cool for you to be saying that, Paul. You need to change what you're saying. No, they received him. They embraced him. That's the first part of this reality that Paul is trying to highlight. But then he says, and then I left. He says in verse 21, he says, then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now I know there's a lot of place names that are going on here so it can get a little bit overwhelming. But basically he went far away from Jerusalem. He went into what is modern day Turkey. He went to, the book of Acts tells us, his hometown of Tarsus. And there he spent about another decade teaching, preaching, praying, walking with Jesus before then Barnabas came and brought him back into not Israel, but just north of Israel, a town called Antioch where Paul's public ministry began. And then he went on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. So before he wrote any letters, he went back and was doing all this stuff in his hometown area. And what he says here is the churches in Judea, that's the region of Jerusalem, they were all hearing about what I was doing. And they were rejoicing that he who formerly persecuted them was uh, and was, was preaching the very faith that he tried to in the past destroy, all right? He says, and they glorify, I love the last line, and they glorified God in me. What Paul is saying is that not only did the apostles like Peter and James say, Paul, you're cool, so did the early church. All these people said, we received this guy. His message is totally legitimate. Now, why is that significant? Well, Paul had an issue. When they challenged him about his authority, he had to both show that his gospel did not come from a human group, but he had to also show that his fellow apostles and the church that they led received him. Because if they didn't, then the Galatians could dismiss him as just a rogue operator that was doing his own thing, but the early church did receive him. So listen to me about why this is significant. When someone today reads back into the life of Christ, thinks back on the life of Jesus, and decides that Paul's doctrine or Paul's gospel or Paul's theology doesn't jibe with, isn't congruent with, or contradicts Jesus's life and Jesus's words in any way, 
they have to understand that they're in disagreement with the very people who lived with Jesus. The very people who watched Jesus, the very people who heard Jesus, the very people that enjoyed Jesus, the very people that listened to his teachings, the very people that wrote about Jesus, the very people who were the first witnesses to his life and the witnesses of his resurrection, those very people, when they heard Paul, they said, that's right. What you're saying is right. That sounds like Jesus. That's the Jesus that we know. To say that you cannot agree with Paul because you don't think he agrees with Jesus is to ignore the apostles and the witnesses in the first century who agreed with Jesus precisely, agreed with Paul precisely because they thought he agreed with Jesus. Uh, to, To reject Paul today on the grounds that you say, I think he doesn't connect with Jesus is like looking at archived photographs of Abraham Lincoln that have been preserved by the Library of Congress and deciding that even though every photo that you're seeing, he's sporting a beard, you don't think Abraham Lincoln had a beard. That's what it's like. Like who are you hundreds of years later with people who were there testifying to what they saw? Who are you to say, no, that's not what really happened. Paul claimed to have received his gospel and even his training directly from Jesus and the apostles in the early church all believed those claims and received Paul as being consistent with the Jesus they knew. So we should receive Paul in his theology as well. Okay, I told you that was a long doctrinal, theological, philosophical kind of point, but that really is the point of this story. It's the point of this passage. But let's wrap it up today by thinking just for a moment about how the gospel impacted Paul. Like, what did it do to Paul? Because he's also telling his story, and there's just these cool things that happened to him. And I just want to quickly show you five things that happened to Paul. And these are things that we want to have happen to us as a result of the gospel. And the first one is this. Uh, He was set free from people-pleasing. The gospel set Paul free from people-pleasing. That's what he said in verse 10. He said, I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm no longer trying to please man. I'm serving Christ. Uh, The gospel came into his life and it just set him free from a need to impress other people, to be received by other people, uh, to have them give him their positive evaluation. He was set free from that. And I think a lot of us are really bound by the fear of man. Uh, The Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 25, that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We make lots of crazy decisions based on what people think of how we look or what they might think of our lives or our success. But the gospel, it says to you, you're approved, you're righteous, you're approved by God. And so you're accepted by God. And that sets you free from the performative nature of life where I've got to somehow gain the approval of others. And when you have his approval, it does beautiful stuff to you. Imagine a little girl who is uh, playing in in a softball game and her dad is the coach. Now, we all know that there's certain guys out there where it's very clear, if you perform well, I'll give you my favor. You perform well, I'll love you. But for this little girl, let's say her dad's a really good guy. He loves her, she's confident in his love. She knows my dad approves of me. No matter how I do today, he loves me. I I have a good standing with him. I'm his daughter. He cares about me. What will that produce in her? Well, unfortunately, some Christians think, well, what that would produce in me with the gospel is I'll just kind of take 
the day off. I'll be lazy. I don't want to even try in my Christianity. But a child who really understands the deep love of their father will say, I want to do my very best for my dad, who I already know loves me. I want to perform well for him. And imagine her hitting a home run or something and rounding the bases in victory. She's not thinking to herself, I've just earned my dad's pleasure. I've just earned my dad's love. She already knows she has it, but she's also rejoicing because she thinks my dad's going to be so happy. My dad's going to rejoice with me. It's not earning it for the first time, but it's saying, because he loves me, I want to do something that blesses him. That's what happens when you receive the gospel of grace. But a second thing that happened to Paul, number two, is that uh, he got a better zeal. You know, he describes his former life as just incredibly zealous. He was really aimed in a certain direction. Judaism was his thing, excelled above all his other classmates. Persecution became his you know, uh, the thing he was fixating on. But the reality is that when the gospel came into his life, he was set free from a zeal for the wrong thing and he began to have zeal for the right thing. You know, many of us human beings, we have zeal, but it's for the wrong things. It's for the wrong things. You know, many of us have a zeal to become something Many of us have a zeal to have something or some things. And many of us have a zeal to feel something. These are the desires that propel us forward in life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, to use the biblical terminology for it. But the zeal to be something, or the zeal to have something, or the zeal to feel something, it is a terrible foundation for life. But when you have the gospel, you have something to be zealous for that is good and pure and will not disappoint. And I, and I want you to know that the gospel really isn't a call to, to being moderate. It's actually a call to being extreme in certain ways, to die to self, to lay down your life, to become a servant, to love as Christ loves. These are exhortations from the New Testament that don't describe a moderate, balanced life. It's not what Jesus was describing when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Instead, they're describing zeal in the right direction. So the gospel can give you a better zeal, a better thing to be about. Number three, though, the gospel gave Paul a strong sense of God's calling. Uh, notice in verse 15 and 16, he says, you know, when Jesus came into my life, I realized I was set apart before I was born by him. And, and he called me by his grace. And the purpose that he gave me was to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. Now, when you think about Paul, it's, it's like amazing how custom made he was to preach the gospel to the nations, to the Gentile world. I mean, first of all, you think about where he was born. He was born in Tarsus. And, he was, and then you think about his, his heritage. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he's a... He's a as, He's a Jew of Jews, he is saying. But he lived in Tarsus, a Gentile city. So even though he's embraced Jewish uh, teachings and philosophies and customs, he's living around Gentiles his whole life. So he's being prepared for the future when he's going to have to go into Gentile territory to preach the gospel. I mean, you might remember the story when Peter was told to go to a Gentile's house to preach the gospel. He, he walked in the door and he basically said to them like, you guys know I've never done this before. I've never been to a G -G 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 Gentile's house before. 
Paul was like, I know what Gentiles are like. I've been living in Tarsus my whole life. He probably because of something his dad had done, had a Roman citizenship that God gave to him that gave him freedom to travel wherever he wanted to all throughout the Roman empire. He was born uh, at the perfect moment so that when he got saved, the Roman system was at its zenith so he could travel the Roman roads and go wherever he needed to. I mean, he was custom designed. (laughs) for this gospel message. He, he, he had probably memorized most of the Old Testament. So when Jesus starts speaking to him, he's putting it all together. Like he is, he is a weapon in God's hand. And he started realizing that after the gospel came into his life. Look, there are things in your life that are part of your past, your history, your makeup, that you, you had no idea that they were for something until the gospel came into your life. And those things are for something now. He is shaping you. He, he wants to use you. We, we might, not, might not be used to the level of Paul the Apostle. I should probably take the word might out of there. None of us will be used like Paul the Apostle, but we might be used like he was in the life of a handful of people. And, and God can take those things in our past and he can, because of the gospel, give us a strong sense of calling. And then fourthly, Paul had a deep hunger for growth. That came out of the gospel he, he went to, he says, Arabia and Damascus for three years, like three years of having like a Bible study with Jesus. And then another decade in Tarsus before he began his public ministry. It took him 14, 15 plus years before he wrote a New Testament epistle. So he had a desire to grow and to be prepared. I mean, he's the epitome of measuring twice and cutting once. God was like working in his life, shaping him. You might remember the story where Mary and Martha uh, are there with Jesus and Martha comes to him, to Jesus and says, you know, tell my sister to stop listening to you and come help me in the kitchen. I have all of these chores that I'm doing all by myself. And Jesus said, no, she, your sister's chosen the better part. It's good for her to sit here. It's good for her to learn from me. It's good for her to grow. And the gospel can give you that hunger and that desire to say, I want to grow. Because when the gospel comes into your life, one of the things that becomes real to you is, I was dead in trespasses and sin. So thank God I'm now new in Jesus, but there's a lot of work for the Holy Spirit to do on me. Before I knew him, I was dead, so I need his help to be changed and transformed. I wanna grow. And then lastly, Paul, because of the gospel, he embraced hard work and service. He went about preaching the faith that he had previously tried to destroy. He glorified God. Uh, Others glorified God because of what God was doing through Paul. He worked hard for many years for the gospel. And I found that the cross of Jesus Christ is the only lasting, perpetual source of inspiration and motivation and energy that can help a person do the hard work of serving his church. So the gospel unleashed that for Paul. All right, so what have we seen today? We've seen that Paul's gospel and thus his theology, they're legitimate. That's the case that he's built in this passage. And every one of us, we have a decision to make today. And every day that we pick up the New Testament, do I receive Paul's gospel and theology or 
Do I reject Paul and his gospel and his theology? Do I go along with the people who actually saw Jesus? Or do I say, no, I'm going to go with how I view the world, how I view the truth, or how I view Jesus? But for those of us who have said, you know what, I do want to receive the gospel message that Paul and others preached, this little passage also helps us consider the impact of our message on our own lives today. You know, like I've been saying, we're, we're not apostles. Our, our story and our testimony does not have major uh, implications for the underpinnings of Christianity. <laughs> but an appreciation for Paul's story should help us appreciate our story. You know, Paul's past, it turned on a dime because he met with Jesus. And I think for far too many of us, the past defines who we are today. And while that's certainly a factor, it's not the only factor. Matthew Harmon said it this way, our past has a profound role in shaping who we are, but it does not determine who we are. One encounter with Jesus is enough to change the entire direction of a person's life. So let's be a people who say, praise God, this story that he told, I wanna tell my story with others because I've been changed by Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.